We've got Sydney, Sweeney, and the war on young girls. They're saying the world's falling apart because you want to be an influencer. More banking craziness. By the time some of you watch this, Donald Trump may have been arrested. Taylor Swift makes history. Selena Gomez goes viral as a revolutionary. We're going to talk about all that and so much more on today's brand new Philip DeFranco show. So buckle up, make sure you're subscribed, and let's just jump into it. Starting with, we've got two news stories today that really highlight how society tends to punish girls for going through puberty. With the first involving yet another batshit education bill out of Florida. With the legislation there, House Bill 1069, only allowing instruction in acquired immune deficiency syndrome, sexually transmitted diseases, or health education to occur in grades 6 through 12. And a key thing is that would include instruction on menstrual cycles. Which the women watching this show might go, that, that seems like a red flag. Periods can start before 6th grade. And yeah, you'd be right saying that. Well, the average age for a first period is 12. They can actually start as young as 8 years old. Meaning there have been, are, and will be girls dealing with periods in elementary school. And so while you have people surprised that this is an actual bill that people are trying to pass, what's not surprising is who is proposing it. Some guy named Stan. Specifically, Republican Representative Stan McLean. We actually saw Democratic Representative Ashley Gant press him on the consequences of this bill, asking. So if little girls experience their menstrual cycle in fifth grade or fourth grade, will that prohibit conversations from them um, since they are in the grade lower than sixth grade? You recognize me. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, it would. With McLean there confirming that even though it is happening in their bodies, their school would not allow instruction on it. Which is why during the debate on this bill, Gant just laid out how horrific a situation that puts these young girls in. Imagine a little girl in fourth grade going to the bathroom and finding blood in her panties and thinking that she is dying. This is a reality for little girls in school. So she doesn't actually know what's going on. And her teacher does not even have the ability to tell her that this is a part of life because she's in the fourth grade. But that doesn't stop her from being the victim of some predator and then impregnating this little girl. This is reality. Or because not everyone has a parent to tell them about these things. Maybe they're in foster care. Maybe their parents are busy or just haven't gotten around to it yet. Or maybe for a mom, it happened when they were 12. They're not even thinking about it yet. But with all that said, uh, for his part, Stan said the intent behind the bill is not to make it so teachers fear punishment if they explain to the student who needs help, adding that he's amenable in some of the bill's language. But words that are not signed on a legal document are just words. It remains unclear what and how much you'd actually be willing to change, especially because the bill so far has passed a vote in the House Education Quality Subcommittee by a 13 to 5 vote, largely along party lines. And the thing is, educating a child about what's going to happen to them, I think is incredibly important because they're going to learn one way or the other. If it's not a parent, if it's not a professional at a school, it's going to be something like fucking TikTok. And while, yeah, there are professionals speaking on these platforms, there's also a lot of fucking people that are not qualified in anything that get millions and millions of views. Like, I know kids in high school who got pregnant because they thought the pullout method was 100% safe. You're making it so that learning about your own body is taboo. And this, as going through puberty in our society, can already be an incredibly alienating experience, especially for young girls. Right, it's why in other news, you had people pointing to this interview with Sydney Sweeney, with the son doing a profile on her as she's promoting her new collection with Frankie's bikinis. And in it, she says, I had boobs before other girls and I felt ostracized for it. And following that, we saw people absolutely slamming her in response, saying things like, hot girls will find any excuse to complain about something everyone else wants. And with that, you had tons of people agreeing, saying she's just complaining about good things, some just sexualizing her, others saying, surely she wasn't ostracized by the boys in her school, she must have actually been very popular with them. Which then tons of people had to step in and be like, yeah, that's exactly the issue she's talking about. She's talking about when she was an incredibly young child. And you saw a number of women sharing what, I mean, I personally saw when growing up. Girls who developed early saying they were called sluts before they even kissed anyone. Others detailing things like sexual harassment in the school at the age of 11. And dealing with comments that were sexual in nature from classmates, maybe even teachers and their own family members. And some of these women explain it. When your body becomes sexualized as a child, you can start to hate it and blame yourself. It can be honestly awful. But with all that said, 
on those two stories, I do want to pass the question up to you. What are your thoughts here? And then, even with Ticketmaster's massive fuck-ups, it did not stop Taylor Swift fans from going to the opening night of the Eras Tour. Because the tour kicked off on Friday night in Arizona, and it was attended by a record-breaking 69,000 people, making it the most attended concert by a female artist in the United States. With reports saying that she broke a record held by Madonna for over three decades, with her getting a crowd of nearly 63,000 people during a 1987 show in Anaheim, California. So I will say, if I were to estimate how many people actually watched Taylor Swift's opening night, I would say the number's maybe 11 billion. Because I felt like on Friday night, I couldn't go four swipes on TikTok without seeing some live stream from someone from the event that had 10 to 60,000 people watching live. And there was no shortage of cameras out, live streams going. Though I will say, my favorite video was, uh, I think of these four girls that were on their way to Taylor Swift and they're posting this TikTok and they're just like, they're crying. And you're like, oh no, what happened? And they turn the camera and at some point they fell into a ditch. And the good news is I'm not an evil monster because uh, eventually they got out of the ditch and they got to the concert. But hey, I guess the main news is congratulations to Taylor Swift. Uh, I think we all know that she really needed another win. And then in entertainment news, you had Shazam in DC taking another L this weekend. Right, there were already low expectations for the movie, expecting domestically 35 to $40 million. Instead, only bringing in 30.5 million. Also internationally across 77 markets, it brought in 35 more million dollars. But when you take into account the wider context that it took $110 million to make and then $100 million to market, massive L. Though apparently this fail was widely expected even from the guy that directed the movie. With reportedly David F. Sandberg saying in a now deleted Reddit comment, no worries. It's not like this comes as a surprise. I saw where this was headed a long time ago. I'll be all right though. I got paid all my money up front. Smiley emoji. Though later on Twitter trying to clarify the comments and saying I meant I knew what the box office tracking was looking like. The pay comment was just me being cheeky. But with all that said, I am interested to see if James Gunn rebooting the DC universe can be successful. Because I mean, honestly, if there is a guy to turn it around, it seems to be him. Not only has he thrived with some of the superhero movies, but Peacemaker on HBO? Fucking fantastic. And then, the final bit of quickie entertainment news is the big announcement that happened yesterday. Because if you didn't see it, yesterday I announced that Zed Tabani, who's been doing freestyle the news on the Sunday shows, now has his own channel that's dedicated to just that. So if you haven't already, go to youtube.com slash at Zed Tabani. I'll also link to it down below. And go subscribe. Not only because he's going to continue putting out fantastic video after fantastic video, but also to give some of y'all launch week Zed supporters some love, five random people are going to be selected to win $200 each. All you got to do is go to that channel, subscribe, and it probably wouldn't hurt to leave some uh, like love, maybe a comment, but also congrats to Zed over halfway towards your first YouTube plaque. And then, with fears over a massive crisis on the horizon and desperate moves to stave it off, the banking sector has seen some serious volatility, with us this time seeing the major Swiss bank UBS rallying over the last five days, jumping up and down nearly 20% to, as of recording, settling in just under $19 a share. And there are many reasons for the volatility, but most notable is the near collapse of fellow Swiss bank Credit Suisse. Or we talked a little about Credit Suisse's situation last Wednesday, but to recap, this is not a completely new situation since at least 2021 it's been struggling to appease investors amid scandals and controversies leading many to just not trust the bank. I mean, it got to a point where in the last 12 months, shares have dropped 88%. While last week in no way helped, it's been in a consistent decline. Clients have pulled their cash out of the bank and some of their major backers, such as the Saudi National Bank, even started to stop their support. In the case of the Saudis, they cited regulatory hurdles. You also had Credit Suisse trying to turn things around and they even managed to get an emergency $54 billion bailout from Swiss authorities late last week. But none of that seemed to calm investors down. And so over the weekend, we saw a deal struck for UBS to buy the bank for a measly three point two five billion dollars, which is also the reason the stocks have been on the rise. And as far as some of the key details, we had Swiss authorities approving the takeover without Credit Suisse shareholder approval, with them citing its status as one of the 30 banks that underpin worldwide banking and wanting to not risk its collapse spreading throughout the sector. And so together, and this is a mind-boggling amount, the two banks will have over five trillion dollars in assets. Now stepping back a bit, it appears that the buyout seems to have kind of fended off many fears about a collapse, with us seeing Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Morgan Stanley having all their stock prices bounce back up, although notably, they are still down across the last few months. But we 
also saw the Dow Jones and NASDAQ reacting positively to the news. With all of that bringing us back to the question at hand, is a banking collapse imminent? Now I have no idea. If I had the ability to predict the economy, I would be filthy rich to the point that there would be conspiracy theories about me. You know, the true sign of success. And the reality here is that we're looking at kind of a different situation. Like unlike 2008, there isn't seemingly a single cause for the sudden upheaval. In the US, banks that relied heavily on government bonds have been dealing with a sudden interest rate hike, killing their value, something that banks like Credit Suisse were hedged against. But in their case, there have been warning signs for years that investors weren't happy. So it's possible that the latest banking struggles were just the straw that broke the camel's back. And the reality is that if a collapse happens, it might be many factors all piling together to spook investors. Because remember, a consistent thing that I've been talking about is the whole system relies on trust. When you have a trust-based system, fear alone can sometimes be enough to re-spark fears of recession. So as far as will it happen, I feel like 99% of the people out there, they're just making a bet. And as far as what the actual answer is, we won't know until we're already past the point of no return. And then there was a TikTok a few months back where the person in the video was pleading for people to please stop trying to be like an influencer and be something like an electrician. They're saying we need real people to have real jobs. Well, the large reaction to that were people like laughing at or dunking on that video, Turns out it's actually very true. Turns out in America, supply is not meeting demand when it comes to technical workers. Jobs like electricians, plumbers, construction workers. With construction dives saying they need a half a million workers that just aren't there. And NPR reporting that the application rate for technical jobs like plumber and electrician dropped by 49% between 2020 and 2022. And apparently part of the issue was the pandemic, where there was this drop off for degree programs where you had to be in person in a world that all of a sudden became very, very remote. But also looking further into this, it's not a single industry problem. In fields that require way more education, we're also seeing a split happen. With it being reported that more medical school graduates are steering away from emergency medicine and opting for specialties like orthopedics and plastic surgery. And according to the National Resident Matching Program, more than 550 slots for emergency medicine residents were left unfilled this year. And for comparison's sake, back in 2018, there were only 13 unfilled spots. And then I want to tell you more about a fantastic sponsor, Seed, and their clinically and scientifically backed DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. As you know, I've been talking about Seed's DSO-1 for about a year now, and oh my god, my gut health is great. And honestly, it's like one of those things I didn't realize how important it was until after. And it just makes sense that Seed's been the answer. Their probiotic strain research and clinical trial successes are next level. Thanks to their ViaCap delivery technology, a unique capsule and capsule design, Seed's DSO-1 requires no refrigeration and the probiotic strains actually make it to your colon with 100% survivability. It also provides benefits beyond the gut, like healthy regularity, eased bloating, heart health, skin health, and more. And I mean, it can be easy to get lost in all the misinformation surrounding probiotics these days. But I can tell you from experience that Seed's DSO-1 daily symbiotic is the real deal. My gut health has never felt more supportive. So go give it a try. In your first month, you'll receive this 30-day supply, a refillable glass jar, and a travel vial. And after that, they send sustainably packaged monthly refills. To make a change in your health, go to seed.com slash DeFranco and use code DeFranco to get 25% off your first month's supply of Seed's DSO-1 plus free shipping. And then Donald Trump is apparently going to get arrested tomorrow, or at least that's what the former president claimed on Truth Social this weekend. In that post, Trump referenced the Manhattan District Attorney's ongoing criminal investigation to alleged hush money payments made to porn star Stormy Daniels. With Trump writing in the world's longest and most rambly run-on sentence that illegal legal leaks from the DA's office indicate that he will be arrested on Tuesday of next week and calling on his supporters to protest, take our nation back. Because you know, the last time he rallied his supporters, it went so smooth. But I will say of all the things this man has done, that, that it's this, it has to be the fucking alleged payments to try and shut up a porn star. Which in case you forgot the details of the whole Stormy Daniels situation, given everything else that has transpired, back in 2016, just weeks before the election, Daniels tried to sell the media the story of an affair that she claimed to have had with Trump years earlier. But then Trump lawyer and fixer Michael Cohen paid her a hundred 
$130,000 allegedly to secure her silence. And actually in 2018, Cohen pleaded guilty to a number of charges, including illegally paying Daniels for the principal purpose of influencing the 2016 presidential election, which he said he did at Trump's own direction. With Cohen also saying that Trump later reimbursed him for the payment. And while Trump did confirm he had paid Cohen, he claimed that it was for just legal work, denying that he ever had an affair with Daniels and accusing her of trying to extort him. We saw just days after Cohen's guilty plea, the former Manhattan DA launched a criminal investigation into whether Trump himself broke campaign finance laws with the way that he paid Cohen, with the current DA, Alvin Bragg, taking over when he assumed office. So we knew that was a thing, but then the investigation seriously escalated in the last few days and weeks. Earlier this month, it was reported that the DA's office had signaled to Trump's lawyers that he could face criminal charges soon. This by offering Trump the chance to testify before the grand jury in the case, a move that experts say almost always comes when charges are imminent. Then, this last Friday, we saw officials familiar with the matter telling the media that law enforcement was prepping for a possible indictment as soon as this week, which is also what Trump seemed to be referring to in his post this weekend. But very notably here, it's not clear right now where he got the idea that he'd be indicted on Tuesday specifically. The spokesperson for Trump saying that Trump did not have direct knowledge of the timing of an arrest and there's been no notification of an indictment besides the illegal leaks. But still, it does seem that this is something that's gonna happen pretty soon. And if and when this happens, not only would it mark a significant shift in the many, many investigations into Trump, but it would also represent for the first time ever in US history, a former US president being indicted. Which is also why Trump's call for protests too many echo similar calls that he made during the January 6th insurrection and you have people saying it's fucking scary. As one expert told the Washington Post, Trump knows the call and response impact of his words on his most ardent followers. His call to take our nation back like his last ditch call for them to fight like hell on January 6th is not only the request but the permission for them to act violently if necessary. And very important, you also have the Post reporting that Trump's call for protests has alarmed some of his advisors. Advisors who reportedly say they fear his rhetoric will grow increasingly incendiary as he feels cornered by prosecutors. Though one of the biggest things we've seen so far is that Trump's 2024 presidential campaign is already using this as an opportunity to fundraise, sending out an email saying that the deep state is gunning for President Trump with phony witch hunts. Trump, meanwhile, has been continually lashing out in posts on Truth Social, repeatedly targeting Bragg, calling him corrupt, arguing that this is all politically motivated, and seemingly implying that this is all part of a broader political conspiracy by claiming that Bragg has connections to the Clintons and is funded by liberal billionaire George Soros. Though looking there, it's been widely reported that Soros only supported Bragg by giving money to the Color of Change Political Action Committee, which focuses on electing black candidates, including Bragg. But the thing is, the Soros name drop, it works wonders with his base, which is also why you've seen many other Republicans running with it. And I'm not talking about just like Trump allies like Representative Jim Jordan, but even his political rivals. People like Florida governor, and even though he hasn't officially thrown his hat into the race, top presidential contender, Ron DeSantis. With DeSantis breaking his silence on the issue today, saying, The Manhattan District Attorney is a Soros-funded prosecutor. And so he, like other Soros-funded prosecutors, they weaponize their office to impose a political agenda on society at the expense of the rule of law and public safety. But, and as a big old but, DeSantis also went on to take a kind of veiled jab at Trump, saying. And so you're talking about this situation with, and look, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to, to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. And that's a very key statement for DeSantis, who has really stayed radio silent while Trump and his cronies have just attacked him and attacked him. This is kind of straddling the Republican base line. And we've seen plenty of other top Republican leaders do this. Like it's so obvious they just wanna use Donald Trump as a useful tool who is not actually in control. Or they're using this, yes, but strategy. They validate his claims because they don't want to lose half of their base immediately. And then at the same time, trying to reason with people, which is also why you have people in Congress that are like, yeah, I think that there was fraud in the election, even though I was also elected in that same election. When we win, it's the system working. When we don't, it's fraud. But as far as what's going to happen Tuesday or somewhere connected to that, you have Bragg explicitly saying that his office will not tolerate attempts to intimidate our office or threaten the rule of law in New York. And at the same time, you have law enforcement officials at multiple levels taking safety precautions and monitoring online channels. 
chatter. And also, as I'm recording today, we're seeing videos coming out of New York where they're setting up steel barricades just in case. Also, with this being a developing story, we're seeing Donald Trump now swinging at Ron DeSantis, tweeting Ron DeSanctimonious. We'll probably find out about false accusations and fake stories sometime in the future as he gets older, wiser, and better known. When he's unfairly and illegally attacked by a woman, even classmates that are underage or possibly a man, I'm sure he will want to fight these misfits just like I do. But one of the main things, it seems like whether tonight, tomorrow, sometime soon, we're going to get very big updates on this. So make sure you're subscribed so you can stay in the loop. Well, we don't know exactly what everything is about to look like. It's very likely going to be fucking crazy. And then Wyoming has become the first state to ban abortion pills. With Republican Governor Mark Gordon signing this bill into law on Friday. And as Axios notes, the new law comes as the nation awaits a ruling from a federal judge in Texas who could suspend the FDA's approval of a widely used abortion pill. Moves that can and will have a massive impact because, I mean, even consider before Roe v. Wade was overturned, right? even back in 2020, medication abortion accounted for more than half of all U.S. abortions. And since Roe was overturned, there's been a lot of focus on them because they're often prescribed by telehealth services and mailed to people. Right? Medication abortion is already illegal in states with near-total abortion bans, but this law is different because it's the first time a state has outlawed abortion pills separate from a comprehensive ban. And with a law in Wyoming, if someone prescribes or distributes or otherwise provides abortion medication, they can face not only up to a $9,000 fine, but up to six months in prison. And then, the latest will they, won't they ban TikTok news? You have the CEO of TikTok going to Congress this week, with him specifically set to testify before the House Energy and Commerce Committee on Thursday. Though I doubt that's going to change lawmakers' feelings who right now either want to ban or force a sale of the app. Also, with the potential ban on TikTok in the states being a part of the national conversation, we saw the stock price for Google, Snap, and Meta go up. And then, it's Lena Gomez in the news for a non-Haley Bieber, whatever the hell that situation thing is news. And that's because on International Women's Day, you had these five Iranian women dancing to the song Calm Down by Nigerian artists Rema and Selena Gomez. Right, they're wearing crop tops, baggy pants, and very notably, no hijabs. And so that goes up on Instagram, and it quickly goes viral as a symbol of resistance against the regime in Iran. Or because women there can't dance in public, much less show their hair. And so with this getting so big, the authorities then reportedly hunted these girls down, detained them for two days, and forced them to record a confession video expressing remorse. But instead of suppressing anything, this just pisses people off more. And sure enough, you see the embers left over from the Masa Amini protests rekindling, with women from inside the country and abroad ripping off their headscarves and doing the dance and videos across TikTok in defiance of Iran's theocracy. And all of this coinciding with a new Amnesty International report unveiling the systematic abuse of children as young as 12 years old who were arrested during and after the protests, with the government there reportedly being responsible for them given electric shocks dunked underwater, flogged, and raped. And then, in many cases, they were only released on the condition that they sign repentance letters and swear off future protests. Which is also why it's so breathtaking that even after all the terrifying brutality, so many people still have the courage to stick their necks out for freedom. And then, people in this Australian town woke up to find millions of dead fish as far as the eye could see. But this reportedly because the area there flooded, and when the water receded back into the river, it was oxygen depleted. Which turns out is an effect that was exacerbated by a heat wave as well. And as the endless piles of fish decompose, that rancid smell is the least of the residents' problems since the water quality could be affected as well. So as people are asking, why did this happen? You have the UN Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change descending from the sky today to provide an answer. Releasing the final piece of the most comprehensive review of human knowledge of the climate crisis to date, spanning thousands of pages and pooling the work of hundreds of scientists over eight years. And notably, this report is likely to be the last one before global warming surpasses 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is why scientists are calling this humanity's final warning. Right, because past that point, we'll all be living on a fundamentally and irrevocably different Earth, with basic ecosystems destabilizing and climate disasters becoming so extreme that adaptation will become impossible in many regions. And the report's stating that if we remain on the current path, it's all but inevitable that we're going to break that limit by the early 2030s. But also, it's not impossible. Right, global temperatures presently stand at around 1.1 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And if greenhouse gas emissions peak as soon as possible, and we reduce them rapidly in the next several years, the report says we may still be able to stay below 1.5. And adding that the world already has all the knowledge, tools, and financial resources that it needs, all that's left is political will. Though, just looking at our record, the first IPCC report was in 1990, and we've still failed to make serious 
serious strides towards net zero since then. And this even though successive reports have grown more and more dire. And this specific one saying the risks are turning out to be greater than scientists anticipate. Not because their research was wrong, but because human infrastructure, social networks, and economic systems have proved exceptionally vulnerable. And as for some of the key takeaway numbers, you have over 3 billion people living in highly vulnerable areas, with half of humanity now experiencing severe water scarcity for at least part of the year. And that's only right now, by the end of the century, if nothing is done, we could reach 3.2 degrees. A scenario in which children that are born today would witness several feet of sea level rise, not to mention mass extinction, mass migration, and mass death from famine, disease, and natural disasters. All of which is why the UN Secretary General now says that rich countries must aim for net zero by 2040, rather than the well-established target of 2050, saying our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. Which one, side note, if you haven't watched it, fantastic movie, and two, I learned that it only just now made more money than Morbius. Which I mean, based on that alone, maybe humanity should stay doomed. Right, on the bright side, if we all die because of climate change, they can't make a Morbius 2. And that's where today's show is gonna end. Thank you for watching, liking, and being a part of the conversation in those comments down below. I know we talked about a lot today, so let me know what you're thinking. Also, don't forget, go subscribe to Zed's channel right now. But, as always, my name's Philip DeFranco, you've just been filled in, I love yo faces, and I'll see you tomorrow.